This is Channel 253. In this episode of Citizen Tacoma. Are we in crisis as, as a community when it ter- in terms of policing and these questions? Yes. Yes, I think we're in crisis and we're in conflict. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Citizen Tacoma. This is uh, part two of uh, interviews with Tacoma City Council members uh, about policing in our community. Today's guest is uh, Catherine Ushka, uh, who represents uh, the East Side and some of uh, South Tacoma. And I appreciate her taking the time to come and and share uh, what she what she thinks about what's happening. And uh, I do think it's really important that we have this forum. Uh, to give to give voice to our elected leaders uh, and to probe what they're thinking about some of the, the biggest issues in Tacoma. So let's give it a listen. All right, this is my second interview on uh, policing in Tacoma. I am here with council member Catherine Ushka. Catherine, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Would you like to introduce yourself and uh, your background before we uh, jump into into the topic? Uh, sure. My name is Catherine Ashka. I am Tacoma City Council member representing District 4, which is Tacoma's east side and south end. I'm in my third year of my first term. I've been in Tacoma for 20 years. I served on the school board prior to this role. That's great. Uh, and you were on the school board for at least a term, right, before you, you uh, went to City Council? I was there for uh, a little bit more than that. I was there for eight years. There are six-year terms at the school board. Great. So um, you said you've, you've been on for, for, for three years. Um, and I, I just want to flag that because a lot of these things have been happening over that period of time where um, flag's the wrong word, but like um, these things have been coming to the forefront during that, that tenure on the city council. Absolutely. It's been a, yeah. uh, there hasn't been a lot of downtime. Yeah. So in the last episode, and I would encourage listeners uh, to go back to it because uh, Council Member Christina Walker uh, gave me and I think listeners a lot of information about um, uh, what's been happening with the council, with the city manager, some of the, the procedures and resolutions that have been passed that were, were um, news to me and things that, that I was really happy to dig into between that interview and the chance to sit down uh, with you. Um, and then the first one that, that uh, I was unaware of, um, but that I had a chance to read, was a resolution last June um, that was passed unanimously that calls on the city manager to turn to transform uh, Tacoma into an anti-racist organization. Um, it particularly calls out um, that in Tacoma and elsewhere in the nation that the impacts of implicit bias and systemic racism uh, is across all sectors, including policing um, and a lot of other things like that. And I'm, I'm as someone who voted for that, uh, can you talk about more how you see uh, systemic racism in our community, in policing in general? Uh, sure. I mean, systemic racist, racism shows up everywhere. Um, and if you're not seeing it, you're probably not looking for it, if that makes any sense. Um, if you go back to, uh, gosh, gosh, Eric, how do I explain systemic racism <laughs> in, 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 a, in a brief statement? Um, there's been, uh, this country was built on, on, uh, on, on slaves, on, on free work, on oppressing people, right? And so there's inequities that are built into the foundation of our community that's continue to leave um, some people behind. Systemic racism shows up in all sorts of ways, not just in, in dollars, it shows up in um, health outcomes, it shows up in disparities in geographic areas um, that go back to historic redlining practices where um, you know, only white people could live in certain areas uh, because banks and banks wouldn't loan to people of color. 
uh, or made it much more difficult. Um, so those things, people hear about them as if they're in the distant past, but they're not. You can talk to people whose parents had that experience right here in Tacoma. So when you talk about generational wealth and um, ongoing education and things like that, it has an impact when, and we can see the impact. Um, when we talk about systemic racism, it's everything from biases in hiring, right? Um, and, and so I know at Tacoma, they've put all sorts of, um, and most contemporary personnel departments have put things in place to make sure that they are um, hiring for diversity. I know at an organization I worked for, they would uh, make sure that hiring managers were looking at applications without names so that the name of the person doesn't imply what race or background they have. So you're right. really just looking at the qualifications because we know that they show up, whether they mean they mean them to or not. Um, How does it show up in, in policing specifically, do you think? I think that we see it more loudly in policing because police carry weapons and have a different effect on us than other things. Is that, I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, if you experience racism in a grocery store, there's not an opportunity that you might lose your life because of it. If you experience racism um, in a law enforcement situation, there is a chance that you will. Um, I, and I'm not gonna say, I mean, I think it's really important for people to hear that I'm not saying that TPD is racist or that every officer is racist whatsoever. I'm talking about systemic racist, racism that we're all influenced by. Um, you know, if you're, um, uh, when we look at incarceration rates, when we look at traffic stops, things like that, the number of people in this country um, that are of color that are incarcerated are much higher than those that are uh, not of color. Um, and that would imply that there's systemic racism at work. Um, when I talk to people, especially white people, and they immediately get defensive when they hear the phrase systemic racism, because what they hear is me calling them a racist. Right. It tells me that there's some leaning in that they need to do to understand the broader context um, of our culture and how we each have a responsibility in that culture. Right. Um, one of the things that I, uh, was taught and I keep in mind, uh, regardless of the situation, is that whether or not it's my fault, it's my responsibility to try and move justice forward. Um, so how does it, I, I'm not gonna point at a specific example of how it shows up in police, because I don't think that's gonna be a, a fruitful conversation, if that makes sense, um, in, in Tacoma Police. I'm not gonna point at an event, but you have to question it when you're looking at um, the data that shows the number of uses of force is more frequently occurring to people of color, things like that. Now, is it a matter that there are more people of color that grew up with less circumstances that they were more likely to get in trouble with the police? Perhaps, and that's part of systemic racism. It's a whole process um, that we've I created think, as a nation. Yeah, you know, and I think what 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 is what I see happening uh, with, with this is is with like, for example, our own most recent example here in Tacoma, the incident on the 23rd that night um, is the, the, the race, the, the race of uh, the, the officer, the race of the, the people standing in front of the vehicle were scrambled from from other incidents such as um, uh, you know, George Floyd or something like that. Like it was, it was a different circumstance, but the system, you know, to, is to, is set up where race is still part of this, if you know what I mean, where um, you still have a system that, that means that you can't separate an incident like that from the broader context of black men in particular being targeted by policing would be, would be um, how I think about that, that it's still, even though, as I said, it's still scrambled, um, there's still some of those uh, factors in play. Sure. Yeah. It was something um, that surprised me how quickly the, the, the local police union put out a statement trying to say that the, that the officer involved in that was, was not a racist. And it was, you know, watching that night um, on Twitter, seeing the commentary. Um, I don't. It, it it felt like a, you know, like a, 
he doth protest too much, you know, because like I don't I don't remember anyone saying that, you know, like that officer was a racist. That that that's entirely besides the point. It's it's the it's the system of it that I think people were angry about and frustrated with, in addition to, of course, the the individual's actions. Sure. And I think um, when uh, I was seeing on Twitter that Black Lives Matter protesters were going, it took me a minute to think, well, I didn't I didn't see a person of color get injured necessarily. Of course, I'm looking at Twitter feed videos on my phone. Yeah. But, you know, stand back for a minute. The point is, is that uh, I think their point is, is that police brutality of any kind is police is going to affect people of color more broadly and needs to be protested. And that's that's an accurate place to be. Um, the police union statement is the police union statement. And, and I think that people forget that unions have a primary purpose, and that is to support the employees that they represent in any way, shape or form. I didn't hear anybody call that officer a racist either. Um, but I think that talks back to people's defensiveness in the context of racism altogether, right? I mean, I don't know if you've read the book White Fragility, but it can go into some great details about um, how that plays out for all of us in one way or another. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the, the protesters. What were your initial reactions when you heard that the only arrests made that night, not of the officer, not of anyone doing donuts, but were those, those uh, organizers? I, I was, I was dismayed. I mean, I was shocked. I, 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 I was looking for answers. It didn't make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense to me. I wanted more information on the situation that caused that to occur. Um, you know, I think uh, I think that the other question that people heard me ask that I'm going to dig into a little bit deeper is um, why were they held at the jail when we're in the midst of COVID? And you know, in my neighborhood, people commit crimes. What I hear is we can't do anything but tell them no and release them because. Um, because COVID won't let him in the jail, but the jail was able to keep uh, those two activists overnight. And I don't know for sure how that decision takes place now. I know it's partially a jail decision and it's one that we in TPD have influence over, but it is a place where I think systemic racism plays in. And again, it's somebody's instinct that this person needs to be held versus that one, or this person's okay to be free in that neighborhood, right? And it's stuff that we've grown up with and we don't, most often when people are engaging in systemic racism, it's not an act of choice. It's something they're doing out of the enculturation that they've lived in, unless they've taken the time to investigate that and to learn more. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked uh, Christina Walker. Are, are we in crisis as, as a community when it ter in terms of policing and these questions? Yes. Yes, I think we're in crisis and we're in conflict. Yeah. Given that, <laughs> you know, how do how do we get out of this? How do we how do we? Um, what are some of the first steps that we should be taking to to make this right? You know, there's a lot of work that the council has done, and I know that Councilmember Walker went through a lot of that with you um, in the last interview. So I can go over that if you like. But um, I think one of the things that everybody can do. Um, is take a deep breath and look at what your role is in the situation. What we're hearing now and what we heard, and justifiably, I'm not, this is not a criticism, but what happens after any kind of incident like that is you see people break up and decide, right? And they only see things from one perspective and they're angry and they're fully justified in being right. We can't come to a solution that way. One of the things I love about Tacoma and one of the reasons why we're called Grit City, I think, is because when things are really difficult, we roll up our sleeves and we come together, no matter how much we disagree, and we figure out the answers. It's not easy to do that. It's not, but we've done it before and we have to do it now. And so I think that a lot of what we need to do, and I've mentioned it from the DS, is that I'll talk about grace and space, and I know that that's been dismissed by some as being full of hot air, but it's not. Because if you're gonna have a real conversation about race and anti-racism. You have to give people the grace to work through what they're saying and find the right path. Because everybody's on a different place in that journey from not recognizing their role in racism whatsoever to being you know, master's degrees in, in, the, in the studies of it in some cases. And, 
And if we don't respect where people are on those lines, people naturally become defensive. And we have to, and I would ask people to try and defer their natural instinct to become defensive, assume best intents, and lean into the conversation because that's how we're going to make it better. Because it's not just some policy. Transformation isn't just about a city of Tacoma policy. We have to change culture. We have to change culture in Tacoma. We have to change culture in the police department. We have to change it in our schools, right? From, from an institutional perspective, we should be taking lead. What would you say to, um, to the argument that, that if that is the Tacoma way, and that's how Tacoma solves these, that, that we are hampered by the fact that many of our officers don't live in, in the city that they police and aren't a part of the community? So many of them do and many of them don't. I think that that becomes a more, I think it's an interesting thing to look at. Okay. If that makes sense. There are officers that live in my neighborhood, for instance. Um, we have um, CLOs that interact with our neighborhood a lot that are fantastic. We community, have some community liaison officers just for anyone who no, doesn't thank get you. CLO. Which yep. are very important in districts like mine. Um, we have city employees that are fabulous that don't live in Tacoma. And, and I think that we have to track that. I, I um, served on the Charter Review Commission in 2014, and we actually removed at that point the requirement for employees to live in the city of Tacoma at the time of hire, because there was no way to necessarily evidence it or to maintain it over time. I mean, it it is doable. I had a discussion with somebody that really argued it was doable. For instance, um, our superintendent of, of, of TPS has to live in Tacoma and it would be a breach of contract if she didn't. Tracking one person is one thing, tracking an entire employee force is another. Okay. And so there's that. Um, I can tell you that there is, I, I think that there's probably some law enforcement science on where people, where officers live um, and whether or not it's safe for them. Uh, because you are arresting bad guys, right? And, and you don't want to live next to the bad guy that you just arrested because you could be, you or your family could be at risk. And everybody, regardless of your occupation, does deserve the sanctity of their own home and the, and the safety and the sense of safety of their family. And I'm not saying that that's true in Tacoma. I'm just speaking broadly about. But that might be one of the reasons why people live outside of the community that they police. It might be. Yeah. Okay. It might be. It might be that, it might be that they could get. Um, a house with a garage out in the county and they could only get a 400 square foot port, port apartment in the city of Tacoma. Right. So I guess one of the other things that I would ask uh, in relation to this, you know, how do we get out of this question would be a, a baseline question for you. So the way that, that I see that it's supposed to work, and I guess I want to quickly clarify this with you and if, if you agree, is, is that officers are accountable to their supervisors. The supervisors are accountable to the chief. The chief is accountable to the city manager and the city manager is accountable to the council. And then the council is accountable to the people who elect them. Is that how it's supposed to work? That's generally accurate, yes. Do you think that that's working? Are all of those levels of accountability functioning? Um, in theory, yes. I mean, I think that um, even as we're going through this uh, uh, resolution for transformation, we've seen the police union and uh, Councilmember Walker mentioned this too, you know, wrote a letter of supporting that work, right? You got to work through the details of what that means. Um, I think that we have different definitions of accountability, and that's also another question for where systemic racism might play in, right? Uh, I think that in a different environment or in a different city, the incident that happened last weekend might not have immediately been called as a potential uh, use of force that needed to be investigated. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was seen that way and is under investigation is a good thing. So I, 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 you're asking a question that isn't as simple as it sounds. I, I, knew yeah. it was, I, I didn't intend to imply it was simple. Yeah, but I think, the account, I, I think that in general it, it works, but that accountability rest on every single individual that you just mentioned, including officers working with other officers. Right. 
I I have a sense. Well, let me let me give you an example from outside the city of Tacoma, so just to make it maybe a little bit easier to talk about. Um, Mayor Jenny Durkin and Carmen and and at the time Chief of Police Carmen Best said no use of tear gas for crowd control. Um, although they allowed it for ending like hostage, hostage situations and other kinds of standoffs, um, which was then used as a loophole so that, I mean, even later that day, there was tear gas deployed on Capitol Hill. Um, and there was also, uh, from what I can tell, you know, other agencies involved who weren't functioning under those same restrictions and they used tear gas. And so there was this sense that the police in Seattle were not accountable to their elected leaders and were no consequences for it. You know, they, they might have followed the, the uh, they, they, they essentially, you know, the, the charge would go found a loophole in this and did not reflect the spirit of the law. And I think that that is what a lot of people are seeing is, is that they're, seems to be a cultural um, disconnect between policing and go up through the ranks and the elected of people uh, the elected folks in the community who don't like what they're seeing but maybe don't feel like change can that, that they can't can't control the situation I, I muddled the end of that question there but do you understand what I'm getting at yeah I just don't think that change can come quickly because again, we're talking about changing culture, which is part of the question that you asked even was acknowledging that culture. Um, so I guess I wouldn't, I, I, I'm not a, I'm not king of the fourth district. I'm, I'm, I'm a council member representative and with one employee, right? Right. So are we working through those things? Yes. Can I, I, I do think that there's a sense that somehow council should be able to say, these six things should happen to this subordinate employee four levels down right now. And that that should happen. And we don't have that authority, first of all. And second of all, in anything that's personnel based, I've been in elected office here and then also at the school board, you, you kind of want to stay out of personnel issues as an elected official and let managers do their jobs and hold directors responsible for that accountability simply because you don't know. It's happened more than once in my account that somebody's going to come to me and tell me their story, and then you're going to hear the administration side of the story. And if you jump in and do something, you're really going to put yourself in a bad spot because you don't know. You know, and so even the hesitation that you saw from us last weekend, part of it is like, what's the whole story? There's always more than one side. So then, I don't think I answered your question. I apologize. No, no, I, and as I said, I, I modeled it at the end, which which made a not very clear question. Um, so let, let me rephrase the accountability part here. People should be accountable to the law. And if we trust that everyone will be accountable to the law, I think it's much easier to have those big community dialogues that we just talked about. But if there's a wide sense and evidence that certain people, like police officers, routinely... Um, are not charged for things that other people would be charged for as crimes or um, are otherwise exempt from certain things, um, it's harder to trust that that accountability to the law in general, not just to the chain of command up to the elected officials, is, is there um, from the community. Does that make sense? It does. Do you it does. Think, I mean, I think. Go ahead. I think that there are many exemptions for law enforcement that have been put in place over, you know, our entire existence as a nation. Um, and that authority, uh, you know, we it, it does. You don't have to look far across the history of the, our nation to see where it's been misused, particularly in regard to race. Um. So, and, and that's where anti-racism comes in because there's a certain autonomy that law enforcement officers individually have in making a judgment decision. You know, we need to weigh the, the pros and cons of removing that or not removing that. 
we you want them to be able to make yeah. a judgment in in a in a flash situation and and be responsible for that judgment. I think about a few years ago, there was a um, a city employee, a, a supervisor. He ran a department uh, who was accused by some of his staff members of sexual harassment. Um, and there, there were several articles about this in, in the Tribune. Um, he was suspended uh, a couple days after some of these incidents. Uh, there was a two-week internal investigation um, removed from his job after the end of that two weeks. And there was later a settlement, and I've looked it up. It was $174,000 to settle a potential lawsuit. But to my mind, that seems like um, a small price to pay to get someone, if all of those facts were true, to get someone who was uh, you know, sexually harassing employees out of a supervisory position and out of the office. And so, I, and so no one was looking in that situation for the council to speak about um, the, the, the employees who are harassed or the, 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 the person who was doing the harassing, um, allegedly, I will say, I guess. But no one was going for looking for council leadership on that. This time it's different because there's not trust, I think, that a kind of process like that is going to t happen in terms of the timeline. You know, Manny Ellis now 11 months or so after uh, that homicide. Um, and I guess that that's why people are looking to the council right now um, versus any other employment situation. I agree. I mean, we're also looking for, um, I think, Benny Branch. I mean, look at our, look at our use of force page. So I, I guess I want to say that before there was Manny Ellis, there were people of color that died in police custody Into in this city. Um, and it's stuff that I was working on before 2020, yeah. right? So the rollout of, um, so first of all, I wanna say that sense of distrust is justified based on the things that we've seen across the country. Um, and I wanna say that I think that there's things that have been in play to try and change that. It's a slower process than anybody wants, including me. When you talk about that 11 months, it just, makes my gut wrench every single time. Um, there were, because uh, Benny Branch is the example I'm gonna, gonna use, because they turned that over to Pierce County at the time, um, because I-940 had been passed, but the state hadn't put out regulations. So advocates of I-940 and uh, myself and others met with uh, police and the city manager and had a conversation about how that was gonna be rolled out and their stopgap was to turn it over to Pierce County which of course raised questions because why is another police department gonna be better than the one that's here now, right? right. I-940 is a citizen's initiative that includes citizens on that on that cycle, I believe, on that investigative body. Um, and the conversation that I talked about happened in October of 2019. In December, like the very last day of December, 2019, the state actually came out with the regulations on how police departments and municipalities should administer um, I-940. And that sets up that countywide organization that we talk about. So they're working on setting that up and that's gonna, you know, at this time in January, 2020, right. working on setting, setting that up. And my understanding, although I didn't learn about it until June, is that uh, Manny Ellis uh, died in February. So they're still, they were still setting up how March. this process works, March. Um, thank you for my, that correction. Um, so they're still setting up how, how this process works. Is that good enough? No, I wanted it to happen instantaneously. In real life, things take time. You you know what it can take to go through an MOU process between agencies. Um, it's extraordinarily frustrating. As, a, as an elected leader, I want it done yesterday, as do my constituents. Um, so there we are. So then it gets turned over to... Uh, uh, PC FIT, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Your County Force Investigation Team. Um, and uh, in the midst of that, they discovered that there was a Pierce County officer involved. 
So the prosecutor decides that she doesn't want to review it. She wants to send it to, um, she wants to send it further up at the same time that uh, we as leadership of Tacoma are saying the same thing. All of these take time and space, right? Uh, and it's extraordinarily difficult for us to wait through as well. But do you want to, you know, for myself, I have to reflect, do I want it done right now, not knowing if it's right? Or do I, if I want it done well, so that at least I know that it's right, right? And that's where we are. I, at this point, Manny Ellis' case has been sitting on the AG's desk for a number of weeks, and, and, and that's where that determination will come from. I, we don't know when that's going to come. I know that we've asked after it. Um, I know that I don't want it to take this long, you know, as the city um, seeks to work with the legislature for an independent investigative body, that is something we can do in this moment. Um, and and that I, I would hope that that would be seen as a positive. As we're seeing challenges proactively, we're looking for other ways to address those gaps. Any process that we put in place, we're gonna have to let, we're gonna have to see how it works before we correct it. Does that make sense? It does. But we do need to correct it quickly. Do you support uh, what's happening at the state? I know um, Mayor Victoria Woodard's testified to this, but do you support the the creation of a, of a state agency to in, in investigate police use of force um, that is not staffed by law enforcement officers? I do. I think we probably want to make sure that there's law enforcement involved with it as well, just because they understand the training that law enforcement's been through. Um, and I do with the caveat that I don't want it to take 11 months for every case to go through it. There needs to be some sort of a, an understanding of how long it'll take. And it's going to vary by incident. Some things sure. are going to be easier to investigate than others. Um, but this has been extremely difficult, I think, for the city of Tacoma to wait for. I agree. Let's take a quick sponsor break and then uh, come back and talk about some of the, the recommendations that came out in that uh, 21st century policing uh, report that you got last week. Sounds good. Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. It's no secret that Tacoma's real estate market is off the charts right now. And whenever I have a question about what's happening, I take them to everyone's favorite pod auntie, Marguerite Martin. I trust her for so many reasons, but one of them is that she's not trying to sell me a house. After 16 years helping Tacomans buy homes, she's now a professional real estate matchmaker. That means her entire focus is getting you connected with the best agent for what you need. She helps you find experts because no agent is good at everything. Marguerite knows all the agents and she knows their specialty. Tell her what you're looking for, and she'll help you swipe right for your perfect real estate agent. She helps me and my wife find an amazing agent to sell our condo downtown. And when we are ready to buy our next home, we'll turn to her for a match again. Best of all, getting a referral doesn't cost a dime. The agent pays Marguerite a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing that you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. To get started, visit movetotacoma.com and hit the contact form. Thank you, Marguerite, for getting Channel 253 up and running and your ongoing support of local media. And we are back. Thank you to our sponsor and thank you to the members of Channel 253 who uh, really have been keeping us going. It's so appreciated. $4 a month or $4 or $40 a year, channel253.com slash membership. Um, and when you join, you get access to a private Slack forum where you uh, can talk about this episode and any others with other members of Channel 253. So thank you again. Um, I am back with uh, council member Catherine Ushka-Hall. Excuse me, Catherine Ushka. I said Ushka before and it's Ushka and I apologize for that. And then also, yeah. If it makes um, me feel any better, different members of my family um, pronounce Ashka differently. So as long as you don't add or remove letters, I'm okay. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to get into um, some of the ways that we might uh, transform policing. 
there is a report that just landed uh, with the city last week. Um, Council member Christina Walker mentioned this uh, when we talked and I've had a chance to go through it since then. It is exactly as she described, um, you know, 10 or 11 pages on recommendations for uh, transformation and ref I would say reform in policing. Um, have you had a chance to read it and what's your sense of, of some of these things here? Um, I have had a chance to read it and I also want to make sure that people know that if they're interested in it, if they Google City of Tacoma Transform, it is linked on that web page and has been since we received it on the 29th. Um, so a, a lot of the things that you'll read in that, they're preliminary, preliminary recommendations and they're almost are listed like bullet points. Um, and when I first read through it, there were a number of things that if they're recommending them in this, in this report, it inferred that we don't have them already. Um, yeah, that's what I was wondering. And it gave me tremendous pause. And so I reached out and had some conversations with both the city manager and um, Chief Aiken. Um, and so they, these are, people should not read this as if we don't have the, any policies whatsoever in place. It means that there's more work that CP21 wants to see us do in those areas. And it might be where it is in policy or how it's worded. We don't know that detail from CP21 yet. Um, and I'm gonna give you a couple examples of the things that I was really horrified if we didn't have in place whatsoever. Please. please. Okay. So um, one of them what that, that gave me concern is that there's a citation and I didn't write down which number it is, that we need a policy that says that um, police will render medical aid when it's needed. And I thought, good golly, why would police not do that, right? Certainly we must have a policy. And we don't have a policy, but it's the RCW, please do it because they're you have to do it as police, whether or not it's in policy. And it is part of um, how they're trained in, in police academy. So it's, so no, it's not also written policy. I think that it will be. And um, as I was talking to Chief Aiki about it, he talked about, you know, when there is medical aid, aid rendered, it's, you know, Tacoma Fire and an ambulance that shows up and frequently, in the meantime, it is TPD officers that are rendering that aid. They're putting a tourniquet on until uh, those people can uh, uh, until medical aid can arrive, or right, right. Um, providing first aid or or CPR whatsoever. So, so TPD officers are very much in, in involved in that, and understanding how they want to see it written out more clearly in policy. Um, is relevant and I think that it's relevant when we look at issues um, like Manny Ellis and 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 what happened there and when when should have aid been rendered or not and I think that's probably what we'll see being explored when we get the CP21 full report. Um, another question that was in there was we need to have use of force reports on every use of force and again to me I thought that was pretty much law enforcement 101 so I asked about it and we do do reports on any use of force. Officers report it to their supervisor and it's review, reviewed um, on a couple different levels. Um, how exactly they want to see that done differently or, or uh, how much more transparently they want to see that done is going to be something interesting to look into in the full report. Um, a third example that I that just shouted out to me as golly why don't we have this was that we would need to give a, um, a policy to give a verbal warning before um, any use of force. And we do have a policy um, on uh, a use of force when it's going to be um, practice and procedure on less than lethal and le lethal force. But when you talk about use of force, I think that everybody thinks use of force is bad, but it depends on your, your description of use of force and where it starts and where it ends. In my life, I used to work with um, people with disabilities and I was trained in the man system of de-escalation, right? And you thought of anything that in influenced the situation and anything influencing could be seen as force as everything from physical presence to restraints in the case of somebody who needs to be restrained for their own safety. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, working with people with disabilities, we reported on everything. Um, in law enforcement practice and in TPD, if I am if I were a police officer and I were going to detain you, Eric, because you're doing something, you know, to harm yourself or others, and I just put my hand around your upper arm to guide you down the steps, 
that could be qualified as use of force. I don't think that we do a report on that right now. I do think that if we, if an officer is discharging a taser or a weapon, any of those things are always automatically um, reported and reviewed. Yeah. So, so I, I appreciate that understanding that some of these things are already happening because uh, that was, as I read through these recommendations, it seemed like, you know, oh my God, you know, are these really not part of the, the what's happening already? So that's, that's good to know that some of them are there. They just perhaps need better definitions or explanations. But I also came away from reading this feeling um, uh, cynical, for lack of a better word. You mentioned, you know, rendering medical aid. Um, and I found that one. TPD should more concretely articulate a requirement that officers must render and or request medical assistance when necessary after force is used. On the surface, sounds good. Sounds like something that should be happening and it sounds like is already happening. But then when I think back to, you know, two of the most recent very public uses of force, the officers called an ambulance after the homicide of Manny Ellis. Uh, the officer who ran into a crowd of pedestrians and ran over someone called an ambulance. And so I look at that and I'm like, so what, what, what good, what good is that doing? Um, if the use of force is either lethal in one case or potentially lethal, um, or, you know, wildly inappropriate, like, calling an ambulance after is is the bare minimum um, of what should be happening. And, and really, it's the incident that we need to figure out. Um, so so that's, that is how some of these things landed with me, was it seems like, it seems like there's, there's, they sound good, like that one, but then it wouldn't necessarily have changed anything in some of these prior of some of these incidents over the last year. Yeah, and I think that we should be careful to look at all these things individually and collectively, right? Sure. Rend rendering medical aid, for instance, is relevant whether or not it's due to a use of force situation, right? Absolutely. Um, you're responding to a domestic violence situation, and there's somebody who's injured in the kitchen. You you were required to render medical aid, right? Right. Um, that's that's relevant. Um, I think that the question that I think the question that I hear you asking, and I think all of us are asking, is when is use of force justified, and what does that mean? I mean, obviously, I think I think it should go without saying that it should be clear without policy and every place else that if there's the use of force that results in a need for medical aid, that should be there promptly. I think that. Um, and I honestly, I don't think that there's anybody in law enforcement that wants to be in a situation where there's a use of force that results in a need for medical aid. But I think the question that we have before us is when is use of force justified? And how do we account for systemic racism in those situations? Now, if I have a law enforcement officer in my neighborhood who is facing somebody who's pointing a gun at them and that person is African-American, do I want them to pause before they make sure that they stay alive to consider their race and check in with where they are on the, in systemic racism? Not necessarily. They need to make a flash decision. And, and, that's, and that's problematic right there. I know it is. On the other hand, I think that we can look at situations locally and across the country where something similar to that's happened, but the person that's in question has been Caucasian and somehow there's been a way to de-escalate the situation without it raising to the level of use of force. And it's in that juxtaposition that I wanna see where do we change policy or training or understanding? Because it ought not to be that it's more likely for somebody who's African-American who's engaging with the police in one way or another to have an outcome of, of a negative use of force. My son walking down the street is, 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 is a big white guy with, with long hair, right? He might get pulled over by the police, but 
I will tell you as a mother and, and, and understanding just how our culture works, if he was, if my son was black, I would be much more concerned about whether or not the police stopped him and asked him anything. Because across the country, what we've seen is that there's a greater likelihood of law enforcement to escalate that ladder of force when they're working with people of color than they are when they're working with people that are Caucasian. Have you ever been um, afraid for your life or afraid of the situation when the police have been involved as a, as a white woman on the street or in the car or whatever it is? No, I don't think I have. I mean, I think that, you know, as a kid being pulled over for speeding, was I afraid? Yeah, but I was afraid of getting in trouble for the ticket. I wasn't afraid, afraid for my life. That, that's been my, my experience as well as, as a white male. Um, do you, it sounds like you, you, you understand why others are afraid, when, even if it's just a ticket, even if it's just um, walking down the street and the sirens go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when we look at the surveys from uh, Tacoma citizens, we know that people of color are more likely to be fearful of or not have trust in the police. And when, again, when you look at the last 400 years in our country, you know, outside of Tacoma, but also in Tacoma, because we're part of the country, the likelihood of people of color to be to engage in behavior that doesn't work out well for people of color is much higher than it is for people that are white, whether it be... Um, getting arrested for drug paraphernalia or, you know, patted on the hand and let go or, or, or things that escalate or use of force. Yeah. I, I, we were talking about culture shift and we're talking about policy and, and those things, what, what it, what, what, what it feels like is, is that, you know, when I see these recommendations, um, it feels like we're trying to to use policy to address culture to a certain extent, which which I think has limited success. Um, what I think what I think we want, and I would be curious, is how we might make this happen. Is when someone does something reckless, dangerous, irresponsible and has the authorization to, you know, carries with them the authorization to use uh, deadly force, that that person is held to a higher standard than just, you know, me uh, walking down the street or driving a car or whatever it is, that that person is held to a higher standard because of, because of the, uh, the trust that the community places in them to use that correctly, and that consequences are in line with how reckless, dangerous, irresponsible it was. Um, that's where I, that's that's my framework. And I don't know how we get there if, I, I don't see that these recommendations get us there. Um, I agree with you in terms of law enforcement being held to a higher standard. I think that's kind of a part of the social contract that we have, right? Um, or that we expect. Let me put that, put that there. Um, I, I'm looking for the rest of the, the rest of the. I, I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm pending the rest of the report and what recommendations there are. Right? Can you use policy to change culture? Well, I don't know. The Constitution certainly has an influence on America. That's a policy. All right. Yeah. When you look at and I, and I think that if we just put policy out there and put it on a shelf and did nothing with it, it would have no effect. But when you look at Heal the Heart, when you look at CPAC, when you look at the engagement strategies that we're also trying to do to make sure that there's robust dialogue and input, that we're looking for, what are the ways, um, what are the things that make, you know, frankly, what are the situations that cause the greatest fear and how do we change those situations? We don't know, you know, I think that I think that if CP21 had a, a package of solutions that simply worked everywhere, they would have provided that. Um, I know that they've done, my understanding is they've done some good work in some other areas of the country. Um, I'm also cognizant that, and they are too, that every community is different. Um, and, you know, Tacoma tends to be unique in the way that we solve things. Uh, it's sometimes much simpler because we 
are a small town really in the end. Um, so no, I, I wouldn't expect to look at that preliminary recommendations and see the solutions to everything that ails us. Um, there's some of that work that I know that uh, the city manager is reaching out for more detail on now because we don't want to wait until March to get started. Um, one of the suggestions or one of the things she pointed out was the, uh, I think it was called the community safety office. I think you have the report open in front of you. Mine's on a different tab, but um, you know, what exactly do they mean by that? Because we did uh, put in motion starting uh, such a department. And so making sure that we're working in alignment with what their recommendations are, or at least checking in with them is relevant. Should we ever hire any consultant and take everything that they say as the golden rule for what we want? No, right. no, that's something for that. Those are choices for policymakers to make in collaboration with our constituency. And that's what we intend to do. How much of this is a negotiation with uh, the police union as you see it, you know, and how much can the council um, make it happen on its own with, with the city manager? I think that's also a good question. I think um, when we talk about the police union, I want to be, things about unions tend to be true across all unions. Um, the police aren't entirely unique in, in what needs to be bargained and not bargained. And it's generally things that have to do with wages, um, working conditions, or hours that have to be bargained. Um, and as a council, we support unions in general and want to support collective bargaining, which means that we're going to ask before we force. Now, there are policies that we can put in place that they, they just have to figure out, right? Budget, for instance. We don't negotiate budget. Um, with the union. With the union. Um, body cameras, we put it out there and then negotiated the details because it does change. Um, it, it can impact work conditions, right? Relevant. Um, when we, the other thing though is, is that the union is, you know, people talk about the union as if it's this entity in a box someplace that only comes out when it's needed. The union is represented by everybody that's a member of that union and they are members of our community. So if I'm standing here talking about what I think their wages should be as a, as a public official, when we're going into negotiations or what they shouldn't have, it's kind of um, disingenuous to collective bargaining because I, I appear to be trying to influence the outcome of their being able to sit down between labor and management and work out a solution, which I think is much more acceptable to understand if I say the electrical workers union. But that's the context that I want to tell you that we have to put this into is because they're both unions and we want to acknowledge collective bargaining in, in, in both of those places. Um, that said, as we go through solutions, we actually will put together a, a matrix of things that need to be, that must be in collective bargaining, things that we can just do administratively or by policy and things that we ought to have discussions with them about. In all cases, you know, everybody likes to have a discussion before they're told to do something. So if we can, we will. How, um, you mentioned, you know, some of the ways that, that, that unions negotiate. Can they negotiate um, consequences for wild irresponsibility and reckless, recklessness? Like, is that part of this? You know, is, um, I, 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 is that a, no. something? How, how do you think of that? Because it's, it seems, again, this gets back to this, you know, accountability and things like that. Um, I get that, you know, unions um, protect their employees from capricious management, um, from uh, wrongful termination, some of these things. Um, but is that, is this part of it as well? I mean, I, I from, from me watching that video, I saw what looked like reckless disregard for human life. And does is that covered by a union negotiation? I just want to take a minute to say that everything that I saw from, from Twitter on, on that night and anybody driving, especially somebody who, that we hold to a higher standard driving through people was horrific to see. Um, in terms of what can be bargained and not bargained, um, I am going to say, yes to some extent and i'm using actually 
my knowledge of other union contracts, not TPDs, um, because disciplinary procedures and processes are frequently bargained, right? That's, you, you have a right to have a union representative show up, you have the right to certain things. And there are certain things that are under no, no in other union contracts, there are items that are grounds for immediate dismissal regardless. Can the union decide to, um, oh, I don't have the right phrase in front of me. They have a chance to um, appeal any, any firing, typically. It's a matter of whether or not they'll choose to engage in the appeal process, and that appeal process is generally something that's laid out in a contract as well. Okay. Okay. Um, so well, I just want to be clear about... Go ahead. I want to be clear about something. I mean, when we talk about the things that we bargain and everything else, now, can we write a policy that's going to force them to do something that they don't want to do? Let's say, let's say we wanted to take... Um, the union of, I'm trying to think of a fabricated union so nobody gets mad at me for something. <laughs> the union that makes um, our Tacoma coffee cups, right? Yeah. If I wanted to pass a law that said that your wages are all going to be a dollar an hour and you're going to be paid on piecework instead of getting um, salary and benefits from now on, right? That's something that would have to go to the bargaining table. But I guarantee you the fact that I was out in a public setting making that suggestion is going to make that conversation at the bargaining table all the more impossible to have. Because they're not going to trust the other side of the table. Because here you had somebody who's seen as a representative of management saying that they wanted to cut them off at the knees. Um, does that make I, sense? I, 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 it does. And, and, and it actually, it, it, it bring, it, it brings to mind what I, what I would say is one of my, my biggest fears right now. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start these conversations is policing is one of the one of the single biggest issues facing our community now, single biggest questions, in my opinion, um, along with uh, gentrification, affordability, homelessness, like it is one of the big things. And we, because it's internal to the city, we are looking to city leadership, city manager, council members um, to address it, just like we are homelessness and some of those other things. And the council can talk about homelessness. The council can talk about affordability, gentrification. But then when it comes to this one, which has significant questions about like, you know, uh, people's, people's lives. Um, we, we, we suddenly can't talk about it as a, as a, as a, well, I, and I, I should say we, you and I are talking about it. So, um, but this is my fear is that if the council is reticent to say things because of union negotiations or whatever that is, um, I'm worried that it that it's gonna just tear us apart if like on one of the biggest issues um, there is this hesitancy and this this um, desire to not upset that 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 process. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and I want to speak generally and specifically. Great. Um, specifically, there will be a matrix on those recommendations of what has to be negotiated and what doesn't. So we'll have some transparency about what we can really talk about and what we can't. Okay. Um, and, and I think that will be helpful. That doesn't prevent us from talking about the issues surrounding anything. Does that make sense? Um, and I forgot what I was going to say more generally about that. So I'm going to punt it back to you. Um, I, I think that, um, I, I think that in cases like um, last weekend, um, there's things that we we're, we're all cautious in what we say because everything that we say is part of public record, right? We're cautious no matter what. You've been in this spot. I mean, the notes I write while I'm sitting at a public meeting are public record. Yeah. Even yeah. if they're even if they're literally just the notes that I am thinking about during that meeting, right? That's fine. I mean, that should be public record. I'm not denying that. But when you know that, 
you are careful with your language and you ought to be. We've seen on a broader level what happens when somebody just says whatever they want to say. It's not healthy. I mean, I don't mean that. That could, that could be what I just said could be taken out of context. I'm really clearly want to say that I'm talking about the former administration and and some of the derogatory things sure. that they have hazardly without filter. Why don't we wrap up with that? Is there anything else that you would like to say about these issues that you would want to have a listener take away from our conversation? Yeah, um, I would say I know it's hard and I know that there's a lot of good reasons to be angry. I'm going to ask people to really try and lean into conversation and help us come towards solutions. We are at a crisis moment, and from this crisis, we can come to a much better place than we've ever been before. But it's going to be hard work, and we need everybody to be part of that work to get it done well. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, they can email me at katherine.ushka at cityoftacoma.org. Um, and I don't have my phone number in front of me. Otherwise, I would give you that too. That sounds great. Well, I, I again, I appreciate you taking the time um, and uh, sharing uh, sharing your thoughts with the listeners of uh, Citizen Tacoma. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to meet on this or any issues with anybody who wants to. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Citizen Tacoma is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.